Lord willing, time willing, we're going to finish up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and do 2 Thessalonians 3 tonight. That's been the goal. Sometimes my goals on how quickly to work through a book do not go as quickly as I want. But that is the goal here tonight. Remember, chapter 1 is a chapter of encouragement. Chapter 2 was a focus on end times. Chapter 3, then, is the practical living in end times. That's why I love the simplicity of this book. Chapter 1 encourages them. The church at Thessalonica was going through a very difficult time. Chapter 2, we did a focus on end times. If you weren't with us, we went through that last week. We had some handouts. Uh, Renee said there were some people online at home that wanted to see those, so I emailed those to him today so we can get those posted. And then chapter 3 is, once again, how do we do this practically? If we really do believe, chapter 2 is true, if we really do believe the end is happening, how do we go out and practically live this? Now, I was thinking about this. I struggle with the chapter like this. And the reason I struggle with the chapter like this is because I find it difficult to teach. Not because the theology is difficult. I actually thoroughly enjoy it when we come to a passage that I find very difficult theologically because I love chewing into it. The problem with a chapter like this is you can almost just read it and realize that's what it is. You know, I, I kind of think about, for example, I was thinking about my boys today. If we gave them the job of, I need one of you guys to take out the food garbage. Okay? So it's sitting there. It's on the kitchen counter. It needs to go out to the field. I need somebody to take out the food garbage. I know my oldest, Elias, no problems, but do it. No problem. He got it. Judah, probably no problems. We pick it up, take care of it. Kenan, my third, watching at home. He would say he would do it. He'd forget about it. Layden, who's sitting in here tonight. He would do it, but he would do it so quickly to get it done, half of it would fall through the kitchen and on the house to get out. Tyrus, God bless him, my youngest boy, would stop and say, food garbage, what is it? What's a field? You know what I mean? He, he just, that's the way his mind works. So the reason I say this is because when I'm reading through this, I have to stop and realize that everybody takes this from a different perspective. And some of the things that I may want to focus on, other people may say, why are we doing that? Because remember, the way this book was written, it was a letter. It's a letter that's only three chapters long. It's a letter that if you wanted to tonight and just sit down and read 2 Thessalonians, you could get it done in, what, 10 minutes? And you'd get the whole context of it. We have a tendency to come and chop it up so much that we lose the beauty of it. So I'm going to try to not do that for this last section and let it just kind of be itself and see what happens. So let's just talk about it here, what the Lord has to say, starting in verse 13. Bound to give thanks... Kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of uh, first, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul says, giving thanks. Do we have a heart of thanks for the body of Christ? Giving thanks, because look at this, verse 13. God chose you from the beginning. Chose you from the beginning. Now, right there is a theological pit, if I've ever seen it. So we're going to skip that, and we'll come back to that later. What did he do after he chose us from the beginning? Let's just keep this simple. Take a look at verse 13. He chose you to save you. Don't you love that? He chose you for salvation, for sanctification, which means to be set apart, which means to be made holy. God says, I have saved you, and I have set you apart. You are my special creation, my special treasure. And I have also set you apart to make you holy. So there's a one-and-done sanctification. And I believe the Bible teaches that there's a process as well of where we are saved, that we're becoming more and more like Christ in how we live and how we act. So saved us through being set apart by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a role in this. If you can remember back to when you got saved, there was a moment of conviction. There was a moment of when you felt the tugging of the Lord speaking to you. And then belief in the truth. We choose to believe. Remember that. We choose to believe. Some people choose to believe. Some people choose not to believe. Because take a look back to verse 12. Same chapter. 
they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. So we're either going to believe the truth, verse 13, or we're going to not believe the truth, verse 12. That is the simplicity of salvation. If I present to you the gospel, and I explain to you what heaven is and hell is and how we get to heaven and what sends us to, uh, to hell and Jesus and his gift of salvation through death to pay for your sins, you can either choose to believe or not. I was sharing Christ with somebody, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and I believe the gospel was presented clearly. It was understood, I believe, clearly. He said, I don't want it. He has chosen to not believe the truth. That's his choice. Is the Holy Spirit tugging at his heart? I believe so, because I believe the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God wishes that no one would perish. But he is not wanting to be saved at this time. Verse 12, we need to keep praying for people like that. And then it's the truth, verse 13. Please always remember there's three truths in the Bible. Jesus is truth, Holy Spirit is truth, God's word is truth. So anything that you run into this world that is considered truth, it must line up with the nature of Jesus and must be led by the Holy Spirit and must be backed up with God's word. If it is not in the nature of Jesus, if it is not led by the Holy Spirit, and if it's not backed up in God's word, it is not true. So keep that extremely simple there. And then moving on, verse 14, he has now called us, and he's called us what? To obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the importance of the glory of God. Jesus' prayer. So often we call the Lord's prayer, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's not the Lord's prayer. Jesus couldn't pray that prayer because he can't say, forgive us our sins. The Lord's Prayer is actually found in John 17. If you want to go read that tonight, it's the prayer that Jesus prayed before the cross. And what Jesus prayed at the beginning of that prayer, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Jesus' prayer is for Him to be glorified. Now, if you just take that on the surface, that sounds extremely egotistical. Can you imagine praying that? Father, I ask one thing, that you would glorify James. Well, there has to be a deeper meaning to it. So let's talk about the importance here of Jesus being glorified, verse 14. Since Jesus is glorified, it shows God the Father accepted him. Because God the Father is not going to share his glory with somebody that is not God. Do you follow that point? He's, he's not going to share his glory with me because I'm not God. Jesus is. So therefore, if I Jesus to be glorified, that means that he is on the equal level with God the Father. Number two, it shows that Jesus had the right to save us. He, he passed all the tests because he was now glorified because he was the Savior, the Messiah. I, I can go get a cross. I can be beaten for your sins and I can get on the cross and I can die for your sins. Here's the reality. I'm not going to rise again three days later. God will not glorify me because I am not the sinless sacrifice. And it also fixes a big problem that we've had since the beginning of time. Do you remember Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God. See, Isaiah says I was created for his glory. So therefore, once I sinned, I fell short of his glory. So now there has been a problem that's need to be fixed. So by Jesus being glorified, John 17, it shows that God the Father accepted his sacrifice. It shows that Jesus has the right to save us. And it fixes a huge problem that's happened since the Garden of Eden. That's why in verse 14 it is such a big deal to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of religions in this world. None of them have the glory of God on them. We must remember the importance of that idea of God's glory. Now, before we get to the verse 15, therefore, let's just remind ourselves, what has God done in verses 13 and 14? He saved us. 
He sanctified us. The Spirit has a role in bringing us to Him. We have chosen to believe. We follow the truth. We are shown His glory. We're called into this. All these amazing things. Why? Because verse 13, God from the beginning chose you. So let's just tackle this head on. Now first off, this is a conversation that's much easier to have one-on-one in somebody's living room. It's hard to have a conversation like this amongst a group or people watching online. And I have noticed that people get really, really worked up over this. I mean, to the point of anger, frustration, and splits, etc. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Because here's the reality. I'm not going to be able to have a teaching tonight that's going to be able to safely teach this and all of a sudden take literally thousands of years of differences of opinions where somebody's going to hear this message and say, oh, wow, that finally makes sense. No, that's not what's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible makes it very clear that you are chosen by God. Jesus makes it very clear in John 15 that I chose you. I was chosen to be saved. That's, that's, that's biblical. I can't argue with that. And I was chosen from the beginning to be saved. Some of your translations say from the first or the first fruits. Ephesians 1 makes it clear. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So God foreknew me and knew that I'd be saved in him and he chose me. Now that's a real problem for some of us because we start thinking in time. You have to remember that God is outside of time. So therefore, for him to foreknow what's going to happen is not a big deal to him because he's God he's outside of time. For us, it sounds like a big deal, but for him, it's not. So I know that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that I have, from the beginning, before the beginning, have been chosen by God. Amen. But yet, I also chose to believe. Amen. See, now to me, those don't sound like contradictory thoughts. God chose me. I believe that. And I believe him. Greg Laurie has a nice little write-up on this. He quotes some people, and I'm just going to read what he says. Greg Laurie says this, Whether we like it or not, the Bible teaches both predestination and free will. He says, When Spurgeon was asked to reconcile the truths, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, he said, quote, I never try to reconcile friends. They're both in the Bible. How simple. It is in the Bible that I can show you verses that you have chosen to believe in what Christ did for you. And it's also in the Bible that God chose you. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said, quote, The whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever won't are the non-elect. How simple is that? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So therefore, when the gospel is presented to me and I believe, guess what? I'm part of the elect. I've been chosen. Well, why? Why was I chosen? Because God chose me. I can't ignore that. Do I have a role in that? I also chose to believe. But God chose you. I know. That's contradictory. No, it's not. It's amazing. I absolutely love it. It's like seeing a coin that has heads and tails. I can't see heads and tails at the same time. I can only see the head side. And if I flip it over, I see the tail side. I can't see both. I used that analogy one time in a small group. And there was some guy that says, but you could put the quarter up on its side. So there's always one of those guys in a small group. I'm just telling you right now, there's always one of those guys. I raise my boy saying, don't be that kid. Just don't be that kid. The reality is you either see heads or you see tails. Both sides are there. 
And when I look through the Bible, I see God choosing me, and I cannot get around that fact, nor do I want to from the beginning he chose me. But I also see that I responded to the call that he gave. And I love that idea of what Spurgeon said. I never try to reconcile friends. They're both in the Bible. And there's a truth to that there. So I see verse 13 that I have been chosen, but I also see in verse 13 that I chose to believe the truth. And because of that, I am saved, I am sanctified, led by the Spirit, believing the truth, called, and I'm representing the glory of Jesus Christ. So now, verse 15, therefore, because I believe all this, stand fast, stand firm. Paul uses that phrase six different times in his writings. Stand fast, stand Do you realize that a lot of Christians do not stand fast or stand firm? We buckle under temptation. We buckle under peer pressure. We do. We don't have firm convictions anymore. Whatever the world says we go along with or whatever my flesh wants. Well, I know the Bible says that's wrong, but... Have you heard me say so many times before? What could you possibly say after that? We need to learn to stand fast and stand firm. And it can be very, very difficult to do. Paul says it six times. I just want to point out two of the times that he says it. I like the example of two of these times. The first one comes out of uh, Philippians 127. He wants us to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity. Any time as a body of Christ we spend any energy fighting over something that is not eternal, we lose that energy promoting the gospel. Why are we fighting over little things? I have loved in some ways, I've shared this before, this season that we've been in with the virus. Part of the reason why I've loved it is I've seen in so many churches and even out here at Harvest how we have stripped down so much of what we do. And it really just comes down to let's worship, let's teach, let's preach, let's share and just keep doing it. It's much easier to stand fast in one spirit with one mind because there's such a simplistic goal at this season. I love that. He's Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. We need to stand fast and firm. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and we're going to make sure we stand for it. If you know it's wrong, don't do it. And if you have done it, tell God you're sorry. If you know you shouldn't be doing it, don't go near it. If you know that it's morally wrong, don't promote it. Don't support it. We need to learn to stand fast, and we need to learn that as Christians, we're going to be the minority on most social issues, and we need to accept that fact, and we need to once again stand fast. Verse 15, and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. Now that's an interesting verse. They're holding the traditions. Some of you came out of churches that there was a whole lot of traditions. Whole lot of traditions. Are you supposed to hold fast those? It's interesting. The Bible has a lot of verses that say hold fast the traditions, and the Bible also says don't hold fast the traditions. How are you supposed to know the difference? Well, Jesus was talking about the traditions. He said in Matthew 15 that the traditions of the Pharisees were bad. Don't do them. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2 that the uh, traditions of man were bad. Don't do them. Here's a very simple rule when it comes to traditions. If the tradition and the Bible contradict, the tradition is wrong. It's just that simple. There are some traditions that have been passed down that are good biblical things that we need to keep supporting and we need to keep doing. But some of you came out of churches that where there are a whole lot of traditions, and if you would try to find that tradition backed up in the Scripture, you can't find it. And at that point, you need to step back and say, I follow the Bible, not the tradition. The problem is you will run into some people that will find a verse like this and say, see, 
We have 2,000 years of tradition of doing this. We need to keep going because it says hold fast their tradition. But that tradition contradicts the Bible. And the word of God is truth. So therefore the tradition is wrong. And some of us have to let go of traditions that we were raised in and stop and realize they are not of the Lord. And we need to let that go and hold fast to what is true and good. Which then takes us to 16 and 17. Because the Lord Jesus Christ and our God and Father loves us, given us an everlasting consolation, eternal encouragement, eternal comfort, and good hope by grace. I like the last song that we sang there. That idea of living hope fits in very nicely with this. Do you, do you realize in 16, everlasting consolation, eternal encouragement, eternal comfort. Aren't you thankful heaven is forever? It's not just you get 10 years up there or whatever year you had here on earth. No, it is everlasting. And it's everlasting encouragement, comfort, consolation. I, you know, if, if I do a funeral, especially for a believer, I love to go to Revelation 21 where he says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more pain, no sorrow, no death, no dying. The everlasting consolation, encouragement, comfort that's going on up there. What a blessing that is. And therefore, verse 17, it comforts our hearts and it establishes us. But look how it establishes us in verse 17. It strengthens us in every good word and work, the two W's. Because of what Jesus did, it changes how I speak and it changes how I act. And I need both those. So I need to change my words. This is part of that sanctification process. Out of the mouth proceeds the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your words reveal your depth with the Lord. What you find funny, what you joke about, what you laugh about, what you talk about, what you want to share with your mouth, your angers, your frustrations, your lusts, your prides. Your words reveal your heart. And it shows whether you've been changed by the Lord. Your works reveal your heart. Now I've run into believers, verse 17, that have amazing words. I mean, they, they talk a good talk about what they're reading and what they're praying and how the Lord's moving and what God's doing. And I go look at their life and their life is not backed up at all by their words. There's a breakdown there. I've also seen people do amazing works. I mean, they'll be the first person to serve. They'll be the first person to help. They'll do whatever is asked of them. Just don't put them near somebody else because you don't know what's going to come out of their mouth. And sometimes I'm not just talking cursing. Sometimes it's just a bad attitude. Sometimes it's just negativity. Sometimes it's pessimism. Sometimes it's just complaining and grumbling about everything from weather to government to people. They got the works, but they don't got the word. So we need verse 17 both. Works and word coming together. Please understand in verses 13 through 17, you have an absolutely amazing summary of the gospel message, which is just absolutely beautiful, of God choosing us, calling us, sanctifying us, saving us, and then going out and changing us, and how we live, act, speak, and what a beautiful summary that is, which takes us right into chapter 3. Anybody got any quick uh, questions about verses 13 through 17 before we go on? Are you good? Okay. Verse 1. Finally, people's favorite words when it comes to a book or a church service. Finally, but Paul has a tendency to keep going on for a while after he says finally. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the patience of Christ. Remember, practical living. If we believe 
that 2 Thessalonians 2 is true, and we believe that Jesus Christ is returning, it should change how we live. It should. So, how's it going to change how we live? First thing we're going to pray for, verse 1, is that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Now, think about that. Is that what your first prayer request would be? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, how can I pray for you? Boy, pray that the word of God would be glorified and run swiftly in my life. Now, how often is our prayer request, man, my knee's been bugging me. Can you keep praying for my knee? Or you know what? I, I lost my wallet yesterday. I just can't seem to find it. Now, are those things that we can't pray about? No, we should pray about those things. Cast all your cares upon the Lord. He cares for you. But I find it fascinating that Paul had such a depth that first thing he wanted prayer for is pray that God be glorified through his word. Not only be glorified, run swiftly, depending on your translation, free course, spread rapidly, speed ahead. It literally means run through all the obstacles. Imagine an obstacle course. You know, you just got in from our last uh, VBS back there and Tony had set up an obstacle course. You're dodging this, dodging that. That's the way the world is sometimes. You are dodging things. You're dodging attacks from the fiery darts of the enemy. You're dodging your own lust in the flesh. You're dodging, dodging health issues that you don't want to have. You're dodging financial issues, job issues. And in the midst of this obstacle course of life, you're stopping and praying and saying, Lord, be glorified in this job loss. Be glorified in this health issue. Be glorified in this depression, Lord. And Lord, I'm going to pray that the word runs swiftly and is glorified for you. And Lord, we do pray, verse 2, that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Some of you live with unreasonable and wicked men. Some of you go to church with them. Some of you work with them. Some of you have neighbors of unreasonable and wicked men. Unreasonable, out of place, wicked, hard, pressed, bad. What the word literally means. They're difficult people. Delivered from them. Because not all have faith. Now, it goes right into verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Now, look at this. Verse 2, he least mentions that there's unreasonable and wicked men. But immediately in verse 3, he says, I want to direct you back to the Lord, though. Did, Did you note that? He's not going to waste time talking about these unreasonable and wicked men. Jump ahead real quick to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to show you how Paul handles situations. You see this throughout some of the other epistles as well. And and you may not catch it here right away. Okay. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, starting verse 13. Hold fast, there's his word he likes to use, the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, the good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from us who are Phygelius and Hermogenes. So he wants to mention by name, verse 15, two guys that are causing problems. But then look what he does in 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Now, why did I bring this up? He spends one verse talking about the bad guys and three verses talking about the good guys. 
In 2 Thessalonians 3, he mentions unreasonable wicked men, but he immediately says, I'm going to remind you the Lord is faithful. God loves some of you. You can't stop talking about the unreasonable and wicked men. Learn from Paul. They're out there. I see them. We're going to pray for them. Now let's move on. We just want to plant and just camp and keep talking about them. We want to talk again about that boss that's a problem. We want to talk again about that neighbor. We want to talk again about the pastor. We want to talk again about the governor and again about the president. And we're going to talk about this again and again. And it's like we've got to move past that point. Learn from Paul. They're there. We acknowledge they're there. But let's talk about how faithful the Lord is. And I love that. And what Paul is doing here in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He redirects us to God who will establish you and guard you from the evil one, the wicked one. He'll take care of you. Now some of you may be thinking, I don't feel like I'm being taken care of. Well, I think Paul can relate. Keep your hands here. Go to Acts 17, please. Acts 17. If you remember correctly, in Acts 17, Paul only spent three weeks with Thessalonica. As we mentioned in our introduction a couple weeks ago, Thessalonians reads a little bit differently. You know, some of these other churches, Corinth, Ephesus, he had such a deep relationship with. You can see that in the books as he's writing it. Thessalonians, it's a much different type of book. He only had three weeks with them. Please note, 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitudes of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now, remember what he said. Unreasonable and wicked men. Verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Paul knows what he's talking about. He knows that these unreasonable and wicked men were coming to attack him and to hurt him. And he says, the Lord will guard you. So when he drops this little note to Thessalonians, they know what he's talking about because he lived it. But you may say, yeah, but Paul got out of it. Yeah, but just back up one chapter. Look at Acts 16 now, please. So now in Acts chapter 16, before they get to Thessalonica, do you remember what happens? So they're over here ministering in verse 16. They cast this demon out of this girl... And then happens in 22 of Acts 16, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. See, he says, God will guard you from the evil one. So in Thessalonians, Thessalonica, I should say, he got out. Right before it, he got beaten. See, sometimes I'm guarded from the evil one and I still go through struggles. Do you remember what happened with Peter and Jesus? Jesus looked at Peter and says, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. Because what I prayed for you, you're guarded from the evil one. Now, Peter had some ups and downs. He was guarded, though, from the evil one. I am firmly secure in my salvation in Jesus Christ. 
not by anything I've done, but I know who Christ is and I know what he's done for me. I know I'm guarded from the evil one. It does not mean I'm guarded from bad things in my life, but I know the evil one can't get me because Christ is on me. And that's the blessing that Paul had. He's speaking from experience here because he's been the beatings, he's gone through it. And that's why verse 4, he says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Confidence. I think of that passage in Philippians where, where Paul talks about the idea that, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it. He's confident of this. I have a confidence that when somebody confesses Christ and they're growing and going deeper, as a pastor, I can step back and not give up and stop and say, Lord, they're rooted in you. I don't have to make them grow. I don't have to make them go deeper in you. I have confidence, Lord, that your Holy Spirit's going to lead them, guide them, and take them deeper in you. And I get to sit and watch the fruit and help as much as possible as you lead. And Paul had that confidence in the Lord. Sometimes we need to step back and just realize, Lord, I'm confident that you're going to move in their lives. And I trust that and I pray that. And I'm going to pray verse 5. What a great prayer. Pray this for your loved ones. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the patience of Christ. Direct them into the Lord. That they would just know him deeper. Paul said in Philippians that he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's Paul's prayer. I just want to know him. What a depth. I just want to know you, Lord. I just want to know you deeper. I want to know who you are more. I just want to know you. Paul is praying that in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the patience of Christ. So now we get to the practicality. Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which he received from us. See, now we're using tradition in a good way. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Verse 10 gets used a lot by certain politicians. That's one of those favorite verses to kind of pull out a little bit there. If you don't work, you don't eat. Let's talk about a little bit of the background on this. Some people in Thessalonica were so concerned or so sure that Jesus was returning, it seems like they kind of just quit. Let's just wait for Christ to return. What about the credit card bill? Don't worry about the credit card bill. Jesus is returning. What about the house payment? Don't worry about the house payment. He's returning, returning at any moment. So you just go do what you want, when you want, how you want, and let's just all not worry about getting back into work here. And so what was happening is this lack of work started becoming a problem. Because what do they do with all their free time? Verse 11, we hear that there are some who walk among you in disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. It is not in the Bible, but it seems pretty true. Idle hands are the devil's playground. I know with seven children, if you don't give them something to do, they will find something to do, and it will not be good and biblical. It is dangerous. Free time gets me in trouble. It does. Now, I'm going to just speak as a testimony for me, so please don't say this. Oh, James is saying you have to do this. I'm, not, I'm telling you, this is what I've learned in 27 years of walking with the Lord. Free time gets me in trouble. I, I do not need to, nor should I, get online and stop and say, hmm, I wonder what to look up. And if I don't know what I'm on there for, I shouldn't be on there. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to go to something completely inappropriate. I may just go check headlines. And then once you get done with the one article, they are so nice. They give you ten other articles to choose from at the bottom. And then I can choose one of those. 
Sometimes I get caught on these little Wikipedia runs. I, you know, I remember getting back from our trip out west, and it's like, what was that really tall mountain in New Mexico? So I looked it up, and next thing you know, I'm on, I don't know, the social history of Russia folk dancing. You know, how does it get there? You just start going down this trail. Free time gets me in trouble. Free time will get me in trouble in front of a TV. Flip, 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 flip. It does. Free time will also make me start thinking about what everybody else is doing. I'll be a busybody. I have noticed that with a lot of people. That when they get that off time from work, they get themselves in trouble. They almost do better working. If I'm not doing something from the Lord, there's a pretty good chance my flesh is going to take over. I don't treat this legalistically. I don't treat this as a have to. I treat this as a Lord. I don't want to screw up. On my phone, I have a little subsection of apps that I call scrollers. Because my flesh likes to scroll through things. But they're all Christian websites that I know I can scroll through things and it won't get me in trouble. And it kind of feeds that flesh in a good way. I got this other app that I absolutely love, and it's just uh, theology questions. But there's this button, and it's just random article. And I click it, and it just brings up a random Bible thing. And I says, I, it feeds that flesh, but yet in a good way. I'm telling you right now, if free time gets you in trouble, online, through texting, Facebook, on the phone, on the TV, please learn from these verses and stop. And find yourself, just as Jesus did at age 12, must I not be about my father's business? That if you're given the free time, use it productively for the Lord. Because when we're not working, or the kids are getting older, and we have that extra time, it's amazing how we get ourselves in a lot of trouble by what we look at, what we say, and what we do. Because all of a sudden, with free time, we have a lot more opinions on things, And we need to learn from these people. And what does Paul say to do? Verse 12, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Paul tells them in verse 12, get a job. And put some food in your mouth so you're not talking. Go out there and get, do something. Now you may say, well, I'm past the age of working. Okay, then find a ministry. Free time is going to get you in trouble. That busybodiness is going to come out. And you're going to start walking disorderly. It's just going to happen. And so he's saying right here, learn from this. Parents that have kids at home, you know about this time, you start saying, yeah, it's time for school to start again. The kids need something to do. So Paul's noticing this. He's saying, church, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And the reality is, if we would stop and say, Lord, I have free time. Instead of trying to find some little flesh thing to thrill me, tantalize me, how about I pray? How about I read? How about I study? How about I witness? How about I serve? And say, Lord, direct my heart towards that. Uh, some verses that I pray every morning is, Lord, incline my heart to your word. Incline my heart to you and enlarge my heart. Because, Lord, my heart doesn't want to sometimes dive into the word. So, Lord, turn my heart towards you because that way I want you more than I want what the world can offer me. And verse 14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is not something you see in the body of Christ. In fact, we would almost call this unbiblical. But this is repeated repeatedly through the New Testament. If somebody claims to be a Christian... And they are not living the life. They are in open sin or they're in open rebellion against God and they are not repentant of it and do not care. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Pull away from them. 
Now, the problem is we hear that and we say, well, that's not love. That is love. I love you enough to say that if I act like everything's okay around you, you're going to walk away saying, oh, everything must be okay. I have to pull away from you and stop and say, listen, I I can't socialize with you. I can't fellowship with you because you are calling yourself a Christian and you don't care that there's this blatant ugliness of sin in your life and therefore I need to pull away. Now what happens is people stop and say, okay, but the most loving thing to do is to meet them where they're at. I agree the most loving thing to do is to meet them where they're at and in love give them the Bible and say what you're doing is not right in the Lord. And I love you enough to tell you that. But if you choose to reject this, we can't just keep getting together and pretending that it's all okay. I'm supposed to biblically pull away. Now you may say, well, that sounds mean. No, look at 15. Do not count him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. Say, listen, I love you. uh, But... This is not right. And so since this is not right, I have to fear God more than I fear us losing a friendship. Because what you're doing is unbiblical, and since it's unbiblical, and you don't seem to care that it's unbiblical, that I'm supposed to pull away from you. This is in Corinthians. This is in, I mean, this is all over. But yet for some reason, as a body of Christ, we stop and we say, well, no, we can't do that. But sometimes that's the most loving thing we can do. I've seen it out here as a pastor. That if the body of Christ would collectively step back and we would all preach the same message to this person saying, I love you and I pray for you and I fast for you, but the actions you're taking are not biblical and it's going to come back to hurt you and harm your family. I think that'd be more powerful and effective than just a couple of us doing it and the rest of us saying, oh, I'm just going to keep hanging out with them and, and just hope that the Lord opens a door. The Lord has opened a door by speaking straightforwardly to them and saying, I love you, but if you're not going to listen, I need to pull back as the Spirit leads there. And that's what Paul is saying right there. Is that hard to do? Yeah, because that's why verse 13 is in there. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. It's hard to do good. My flesh wants to sin. It's hard to do good. And it's hard being the moral person. Sometimes it's easier just to stand up and say, you know what, you think it's right? Fine, it's right. I'm tired of constantly telling you that it's wrong. Just fine, go do whatever you want. Sure, think it's okay. Lord, no, Lord, I've got to fear you more than I fear anybody else. I've got to keep preaching the truth and saying, I can't grow weary in doing good. And then look at the next verse, verse 16. Right after saying, admonish him as a brother, verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Lord, give me a peace to take this stand. Lord, give me a peace that from their perspective, I'm going to be the bad guy. Lord, give me a peace to take such a stand for your truth that I stop and look at them in love and say, I love you enough that we can't let this go. You're, you're, you're being a busybody. You're causing harm to the body of Christ. That, that's a flagrant, open sin that you're not caring about. And, and I'm, I'm loving you and admonishing you and rebuking you and correcting you. And I hope you listen. But if you choose not to listen, then biblically, I've got to pull away. And just trust that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you. And that's what Paul is telling them to do. That's a hard thing to do as a church. That's a hard thing to do as an individual. But that's sometimes the most loving, biblical thing that we can do. All right, any quick questions here about anything so far then before we get ready to finish this up? Lies, anything from online? Nope? Okay. All right. So then, 17, the salutation of Paul with my own hand which is signed in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. From some of Paul's epistles, it looks like maybe some people were trying to fake some letters from him. So what it looks like Paul did was dictate his letters to people that would write them down. 
And then Paul at the end, verse 17, would go sign it himself. And that was kind of his stamp. So that way when you would look at the letter, you would stop and say, hey, it's signed by Paul. So the letter was probably dictated. We know certain letters were dictated. It comes right out and says it. But then he would sign his name at the bottom of it. And then he kind of finishes with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What's the practicality we can pick up from verse 6 on? Live as if Jesus was returning. Let that always be in the forefront of everything you do. But do not let it become something, verse 6, that makes you disorderly and pulls away from the truth. Once again, I, I, I know people personally that were so convinced Christ was returning that they were going to go buy property in, in some foreign, I thought say foreign state, um, some other state up in the hills and wait for the return of Christ. No. <laughs> That's not what God is calling us to do. Occupy till I come. Go out there and get the job and keep working. Keep laboring. Just as Paul set the example. And sometimes we need to remind people in verse 10, you're becoming spiritually and physically lazy here. Now please note, if anyone will not work, it does not say if anyone cannot work. Please make a little bit of an example there. There are certain people that want to work, that cannot work. They're looking for jobs. They cannot find a job. This is a completely different topic. We as the body of Christ should support them, help them, and encourage them in any way we can. Paul's talking specifically in verse 10 of people that are choosing not to work. Not to work. Huge difference between if anyone cannot work versus to anyone will not work. Maul Ingalls always used to say, hunger is the best sauce. Verse 10 Hunger usually drives people to say, I need to get a paycheck. Kind of drives them on a little bit there. So Paul says at the end there once again, hey, this is tough stuff. Verse 13, let me remind you, do not grow weary in doing good. And verse 16, what a great verse. If you're struggling here tonight in anything, I do pray, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way the Lord be with you all. Jesus is returning. Maranatha. Let's look up for our redemption girls in here. All right, any final questions here, comments, about anything before we close up? All right, we're good? Okay. Uh, in way of announcements, just to remind everybody, prayer time Sundays uh, between the two services. First service is at 9, so prayer time between 10 and 10.25 or so on Sunday. Come on out there and be blessed. Um, I just heard a great teaching today by Alistair Begg, and he was talking about prayer and churches praying. And I don't know if you know Alistair Begg or not. A great accent. And he said, it's frankly jolly difficult, as he put it, for people to pray. Prayer is hard. And so I would encourage you to come out on Sundays from 10 to whatever and do the hard thing. But look what Paul said in verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. What a great encouragement there is to say there's a power in that as well. Um, Hey, a big thanks to Tony and everybody else that helped with the VBS. There were some uh, bumps there with some of the uh, Henry County Level 3 red, but they were able to finish it up, and what a blessing that was to the kids that could come out. So big thank you to that as well. Um, we'll be meeting Sunday at 9 and at 10.30, and continue our study through the Book of Psalms. Would you guys stand with me as we pray to close out? Lord, what a great verse just to end on. May the God of peace give us peace in all ways and everything. I pray for that, Lord. I pray that we would have peace physically, peace spiritually, peace emotionally. And Lord, I do pray that we would be able to find that depth in prayer to say, Lord, we want you glorified and see God's word run swiftly. 
Help us to not grow weary in doing good. And for someone listening to this, watching this, or here tonight, and they're growing weary in doing good, encourage them, Lord, to fight the good fight. You're a good God in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless.